Well, as I mentioned before, our kids are with us. And so kids, as I begin this morning, I would love to ask you all a question. Let me just get it up one second. If you were able to hop into a time machine and travel into the future, what do you think you will be when you grow up? I don't want to have a guess. A police officer from the son of the police officer. Hey, that's, uh, you know, that's not bad. Yeah, over here. A grown-up. I reckon there is a pretty good chance of that actually happening. Yeah. Anyone else, kids? No? All right. Well, for all the adults in the room, I wonder what it is that you thought you would be when you grew up. When I was uh, a grown-up, did that happen? When I was in primary school, I wanted to be an electrician. A friend of mine, his dad was an electrician. They seemed to have a lot of money. So I thought, that seems like a good career choice. When I was in middle school, I wanted to be an accountant. Similarly, I was told you could make a lot of money as an accountant. That seems like a good choice. In later high school, for most of my 20s, I wanted to be a famous singer without having to work for it. And I figured that, you know, maybe sometime later in my life, perhaps in my 40s, you know, maybe I'll be a pastor. You can see how that worked out for me. Life doesn't always work out the way we think it will. In many cases, actually, for a lot of us, it doesn't work out in the way we would like it to work out. So let me ask you, which details, which aspects of your life now have not gone the way that you had hoped they would? And which of those do you find the hardest to live with every day? Our passage this morning is not so much about uh, vocation or relationships or life decisions, but it is about the details of life. And in particular, it is about future life. As we come to a close in our series on Daniel, this last section is by far the longest out of all of the different sections. It spans from chapters 10 to 12. Uh, and as much as I would love to preach all three of those chapters uh, in one hit, because it's one unit, uh, that would be a little bit overbearing even for me, I think. So uh, consider the next couple of weeks as parts one and two of the same story. Uh, in the same way that movie studios love to capitalize uh, on their Golden Goose franchises, uh, we'll be cutting our final section into two parts the same way that Harry Potter and The Hunger Games did. I've given uh, uh, the sermons for these next two weeks uh, the totally original and clever name, Back to the Future, which I hope will make more sense as we go. And we'll actually uh, divide this morning's sermon into uh, two sections uh, with the reading of the relevant passages in between. 
Our first section will be all of chapter 10 through to uh, uh, 11, verse 1. And our next section will be uh, chapter 11, verses 2 to 20, 35. Uh, and this, this morning, I won't have any particular headings or points uh, for you, but we'll simply walk us through the text as we understand the context of these chapters and what God is telling us in them. So let me encourage you to have your Bibles open and follow along as we do that. Uh, please open your Bibles to Daniel chapter 10. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, then you are welcome to use one of the blue ones that are on our seats around. Feel free to grab that and also feel free to take one home as our gift to you if you don't own one. Scott is now going to come and read to us Daniel 10. Daniel 10 verse 1 through to 11 verse 1. In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a word was revealed to Daniel, who was named Belteshazzar. And the word was true, and it was a great conflict. And he understood the word and had understanding of the vision. In those days I, Daniel, was mourning for three weeks. I ate no delicacies, no meat or wine entered my mouth, nor did I anoint myself at all for the full three weeks. On the 24th day of the first month, as I was standing on the bank of the great river, that is, the Tigris. I lifted up my eyes and looked, and behold, a man clothed in linen with a belt of fine gold from Ephaz around his waist. <clears throat> his body was like beryl, his face like the appearance of lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze, and the sound of his words like the sound of a multitude. And I, Daniel, alone saw the vision. For the men who were with me did not see the vision, but a great trembling fell upon them, and they fled to hide themselves. So I was left alone and saw this great vision, and no strength was left in me. My radiant appearance was fearfully changed, and I retained no strength. Then I heard the sound of his words, and as I heard the sound of his words, I fell on my face in deep sleep with my face to the ground. And behold, a hand touched me, and set me trembling on my hands and knees. And he said to me, O Daniel, man greatly loved, understand the words that I speak to you, and stand upright, for now I have been sent to you. And when he had spoken this word to me, I stood up trembling. Then he said to me, Fear not, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and humbled yourself before your God, your words have been heard. And I have come because of your words. The prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days. But Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me. For I was left there with the kings of Persia and came to make you understand what is to happen to your people in the latter days. For the vision is for days yet to come. When he had spoken to me according to these words, I turned my face toward the ground and was mute. And behold, one in the likeness of the children of man touched my lips. Then I opened my mouth and spoke. I said to him who stood before me, O oh my Lord, by reason of the vision, pains have come upon me, and I retain no strength. How can my Lord's servant talk with my Lord? For now no strength remains in me, and no breath is left in me. Again, one having the appearance of a man touched me and strengthened me. And he said, O man greatly loved, fear not, peace be with you, be strong and of good courage. And as he spoke to me, I was strengthened and said, let my Lord speak, for you have strengthened me. 
Then he said, Do you know why I have come to you? But now I will return to fight against the prince of Persia. And when I go out, behold, the prince of Greece will come. But I will tell you what is inscribed in the book of truth. There is none who contends by my side against these except Michael, your prince. And as for me, in the first year of Darius the Mede, I stood up to confirm and strengthen him. Thank you, Scott. So here we are. Daniel has had several visions now throughout this book. And in these last three chapters, we see his final visions. The the feel of the setting of this is somewhat similar to the beginning of chapter 9, which we saw last week, where we saw Daniel mourning in sackcloth and in ashes as he prayed. Now, the most likely reason for this is the fact that his fellow Israelites who had returned to Jerusalem to rebuild the city were now, some years later, facing significant opposition to that work. And so in the middle of this difficult time, God gives him this vision. Daniel fasts from all delicacies and from meat and wine because of his sorrow. And this is likely proof that the diet of vegetables and water that we saw at the beginning of the book uh, that his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego requested uh, was not one that became a permanent diet for them. Now, this, as I said, shows Daniel's great sorrow. Now, for us these days, Uh, We don't go without meat and wine when we're mourning. As a matter of fact, we probably eat more meat and wine when we are sad and sorrowful, along with, you know, some ice cream thrown in for good measure. But in this context and in his cultural setting, it was a clear sign of Daniel's identification with his trials, uh, with the trials of his people. And so while Daniel is standing on the great Tigris River, he looks up and he sees this man. This description that we see in verses 5 and 6, the whole point of it, as we've seen in other fantastic visions in Scripture, both in Daniel and in other parts of the Bible, the purpose of it is to give us a sense of how great and of how incredible this man is and ultimately almost impossible to just capture in words what it was like for Daniel to see him. His speech even, it sounds like a crowd of people This is no ordinary man. This is no ordinary person. The description is of one who is heavenly. Angels and messengers from God are often described with this kind of language. The linen clothing that we see in the passage reminds us of the priestly garments that the priests would wear and the holiness and the set-apartness that those garments represented. Daniel has even described these messengers from God, these angels, before as holy ones in chapter 8. And so all of this points to the fact that what we are seeing here, this man that Daniel is describing, is in fact some kind of angel or messenger from the Lord. Now some think that this could be the pre-incarnate Christ coming to visit Daniel. Uh, Personally, given the way that this conversation plays out and the fact that we saw Gabriel in the previous chapter, in chapter 9, I think it's more likely that this is to be the angel Gabriel, uh, that, who was named in the previous chapter, or if not, another angel. Now, kids, let me ask you a question. According to this chapter, according to the verses that I just read in the Bible, do angels exist? What do you think? Yes. Yes, that's right. They do. 
As we've just saw in, seen and heard about in this description, angels do, in fact, exist. And it's important to note here that the Bible very clearly establishes the reality of angels and of a spiritual world that exists alongside the physical one that we all inhabit. So yes, angels exist, and yes, as we will see, demons also exist. But beyond that, you want to be careful about the things that you assert about angels and demons and make sure that you are being guided by the Word of God. I'll say more about that a bit later. Now, interestingly here, uh, in this uh, uh, vision that Daniel is getting, we see that he actually wasn't alone. Uh, Perhaps he had an entourage, you know, given, as we saw in previous chapters, uh, that he had important positions in the kingdoms that he was a part of, and that by now, he was an old man, he was uh, likely an octogenarian. Does anybody know what that means? He's in his 80s, that's right. Most likely that is how old Daniel is. It's, it's not surprising to find that he had people with him as he journeyed out to the Tigris River. But you see, the vision is not for them. Uh, my wife and kids, as they were discussing this this morning, uh, asked the question, is this actually a vision that Daniel is seeing that's going on in his head, or did it happen in real life? Like, was the angel actually there? And my response was, well... Uh, it, it could have been either, but there is, it's, it's likely that the angel was there, even though the people with him didn't actually see the angel. They felt a presence. They, they felt something that caused them to be terrified. And so in God's purpose, in, in, in sending the angel to Daniel, it was only him who would see the, the angel as the rest of his companions ran for the hills. And how does Daniel feel after seeing this great vision? Well, if you've ever had a really stressful or terrifying dream, one where you wake up in a sweat, or perhaps even if you've found yourself being so worried about something that it replays over and over and over in your mind, and by the end of it, you are just absolutely exhausted. If you've had that feeling, then you probably have a a small idea of how Daniel felt having this encounter. Listen to that description in verse 8. No strength was left in me. My radiant appearance, my normally happy countenance was fearfully changed. And I retained no strength. In case you missed it the first time, let me tell you again. He really wants us to get that his strength was completely, utterly gone. And that he was terrified. I don't think I've ever had a dream like that. But he continues. Daniel hears the angel speak again, and probably out of his utter exhaustion, he falls on his face in deep sleep. I mean, he's been fasting for three weeks from certain foods from his body that that he would have been used to, so that probably also weakened him as well. And so the angel, to help him recover from this, touches him for the first time. And you notice how he sets him on his hands and knees Yet he is trembling. This is something that we see throughout this entire chapter. Daniel being so overwhelmed and overcome by this vision. And indeed, that's something, a response that we've seen from him already multiple times in the book. Friends, an encounter, an experience with God or one of his angels 
is an overwhelming experience. Not everybody had them then. Not everybody has them now. But Daniel did. He had them several times. And several times, even in this chapter alone, he is overwhelmed. This is something that we ought to try and wrap our minds around. Too often, you see, and too easily, we tame God. Too often, we think that we can contain Him to our thoughts, that we can uh, keep Him you know, pretty well uh, boxed in our ideas and the way that we talk about Him. But if you were to encounter Him like this, then you would be overwhelmed. If you think that you would be able to face a, a Category 5 cyclone with wind speeds of 250 kilometers standing on the shores of Casuarina Beach and remain standing, think again. That would not be possible. You see, not only should we try and wrap our minds around this, but we would do well to position our hearts accordingly. Our God is an awesome God. He is an awesome God. But he is also a loving God. In verse 11, the angel speaks to Daniel, telling him that he is greatly loved. And he instructs him to stand and hear the words that he speaks to him. Now, Daniel's already been described as one greatly loved in this book, and he will be again. Brothers and sisters, you might not be a prophet. As a matter of fact, I have a high degree of uh, <laughs> certainty around that. You might not even think of yourself as, as anyone particularly special. You're not sure if your resolve would hold if you were faced with the fiery furnace or with the lion's den. Perhaps you think to yourself, you know, I, I, can't, I can't dare to be a Daniel. How could I possibly be somebody that righteous? But if you are in Christ, then you are greatly loved by God. You are valued and you are treasured by Him. If that is something that you struggle with, then let me encourage you to read through and to meditate on John chapter 17. Do it this week, perhaps with another member or another uh, brother or sister in Christ, and see how great God's love is for you. It's because of God's love shown to us in Christ's that we are not blown into oblivion by the cyclone. So what message does this angel have to pass on to Daniel? Let's read from verse 12. Then he said to me, Fear not, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and humbled yourself before your God, your words have been heard, and I have come because of your words. The prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days, but Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I was left there with the kings of Persia and came to make you understand what is to happen to your people in the latter days, 
for the vision is for days yet to come. I don't know if you've uh, ever been out in the bush and you've lifted up a log or a big piece of bark and you've seen underneath it that there is this whole world of insects and bugs all crawling around in there. Kids, has anyone done that? Yeah, couple, kids, yeah. It's fascinating, isn't it? To, to, to look on the surface and to see, oh, there's nothing here. It's just a, just a piece of bark. But then you lift it up and there's a world just, just crawling, teeming underneath there. Well, this verse is a little bit like the angel lifting that piece of bark on the spiritual world and showing us just a little bit of what it is like. This angel was delayed in coming to Daniel because the prince of the kingdom of Persia resisted him for 21 days. When I was a kid, I used to play an old video game called Prince of Persia. And there was a movie some years ago with the same name. Just to be clear, that's not what this verse is talking about. And I also don't think that it is talking about a human prince of the nation of Persia. There are three main reasons for this. One, this is an angel speaking to Daniel, so it's likely that he's speaking about another spiritual being that he was battling. The second reason is that in the very next breath, he mentions Michael, whom he calls, what? One of the chief princes who helped him to fight the prince of Persia. Michael is mentioned in the Bible in Jude 9 as an archangel, where he is contending with the devil, and also in Revelation 12, 7, where he leads a war against the dragon. And thirdly and finally, at the end of chapter 10, the angel refers to the prince of Greece and also to Michael, who is referred to as your prince. The your there being plural. So it's far more likely that there is a spiritual being a demon who contends for Persia and another one for Greece and Michael who contends for God's people, Israel. Now, that much we know. But the Bible doesn't think we need to know much more than that. Why are they fighting? Why does God allow this? What impact does their fight have on physical human battles? What of, how often do they fight? Does every nation, every people group have their own angel or demon? Is that still true today? Well, most of these questions, they don't have direct answers from the Bible. And maybe one day we'll do a topical sermon on angels and demons. But for now, the bare facts that we have observed are all that we need to know. This messenger, this angel wanted to come to Daniel in response to his humble prayer. But the prince of Persia prevented him from doing so until Michael helped him. And so why did he come? Well, he came to make Daniel understand what is going to happen to his people in the latter days. In the latter days. As we've seen both in our Kings series and in this series in Daniel, the term latter days can be a theologically loaded term. It was an agrarian term, a farming term to refer to the different rains and the different days in the season of of farming. But it came to to, uh, occasionally have this theologically loaded meaning. 
But most relevant to us is its use here in Daniel. You see, when Nebuchadnezzar had his dream, you might remember in chapter 2, about the statue made up of multiple sections of gold, silver, bronze, iron, and clay. You know, the very statue at the bottom right-hand corner of our uh, PowerPoint uh, artwork that Hugh has so wonderfully done for us. In that chapter, when in that vision, Daniel prayed that God would reveal its meaning to him so that he might be able to share it with Nebuchadnezzar and spare the lives of the wise men of the kingdom. And God did. And this is what he said to, what Daniel said to Nebuchadnezzar after God had revealed it to him. There is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. And this is appropriate because the vision that we're about to see in these final chapters again concerns a couple of these kingdoms and the end of all earthly kingdoms, which the vision in Daniel chapter 2 also referred to. This vision is for days yet to come. You see, a consistent theme of this whole book has been God's kingship over all earthly kingdoms and over all history. And in particular, it has shown us how God has command over the future. As we'll continue to see this morning and next week, in that fact that God holds the future lies our deepest assurance of hope. The fact that God is the author, not just of the past, not just of the present, not just the, uh, but also of the future, lies our deepest hope. I had a conversation with a friend at church some months ago about the difference between Christian hope and other hope. He was not, I believe still is not, a Christian. Because you see, hope is necessarily bound up with some kind of future result. You don't need hope if you don't think that your current situation needs to be improved. If you're quite happy where you are, there's no need for any kind of hope. The whole point of hope is that you have a positive expectation and a desire for a future circumstance to be better than it is now. This friend uh, said that, well, he, he has the same thing. He, he can get through life because he has hope that things can improve. And, you know, he's actually even able to learn from his experiences so that he can make adjustments and make some changes to his circumstances and improve them. I explained to him that the difference between that and Christian hope is that Christian hope is based on a certain future. And that certain future gives us a certain hope. You see, the hope that my friend was describing at bottom is just wishful thinking. Sure, there are some circumstances that you can have some degree of control over. You can go and study. You can, you know, whatever it is, apply for a job. But ultimately, no human being knows what is coming. I cannot step into the next 20 minutes. Time travel is still the stuff of sci-fi. As the late Stephen Hawking proved 
in 2009 when no one came to his time traveler's party that he held, which he held and then sent the invitations out for after he'd already had the party. If the movie Back to the Future was real and not fiction, then everybody would be driving flying cars now and we would have shark holograms in the streets. There is no one, no human being who can see the future. And this is why any hope apart from God can never truly be a certain hope. Any hope apart from God can never truly be a certain hope. Friend, if you're here this morning and you do not know Jesus, then you do not have a certain hope for the future. As a matter of fact, all you do have is a certain reality that awaits every person who does not turn from their sin and trust in Christ. And that is the reality of God's judgment. Just as sure as God brought judgment upon his own people for their sin and the kingdoms of the world for their sin, so his eternal judgment falls on every person who does not turn from their sin and, in, and their rebellion and put their trust in Christ. But you see, the good news of the gospel is that you can have a certain hope. You can have a certain hope for the future by doing exactly that, repenting and turning from worshipping and loving all of the other idols and things of this world. Placing your trust in Jesus in doing that, God has promised that in Christ, your future, and more importantly, your eternal future, is secure. Let me urge you, if you have not considered that today, to do so. None of us knows how much more time we have. Brothers and sisters, if you find that you are despairing because things in life, they have not gone to plan. Or if it feels to you like, you know, you're just, you're just one promotion away or one move or one relationship away from, from full happiness. Then perhaps it's worth thinking about what your hope is built on. Are your hopes in some good thing happening within your lifetime? Are you seeking contentment and comfort and assurance of God's goodness from a possible circumstance change that could happen sometime in the future of your earthly life? Hope in such things in this life Look, it's not necessarily a bad thing, but they will never put your mind fully at ease. Build a certain hope on a certain future, not one that no one can predict or tell you about. That is what the Lord encouraged Daniel and his people to do, to have hope in what is sure.
And so we see in verse 15, once again, that Daniel is floored by these words. He falls flat on his face and he is unable to speak. Then in a very Isaiah-esque action, in verse 16, the angel touches the lips of Daniel to rouse him once again. Daniel repeats how heavy this vision is, how much it is taking its toll on him. And this time he describes pain as well as another loss of strength and a loss of breath. He is once again overwhelmed. And so for the third time, the angel touches him to strengthen him. He does so by reminding him again that he is greatly loved. And he encourages him to not fear but to be at peace and to be strong and to be of good courage. Those instructions are all found in other places in Scripture, and they are all exhortations, encouragements that God's people can keep reminding themselves of. You know, you can almost hear the angel doing everything he can as he seeks to encourage and, and restore Daniel to comfort him. He gives him these varied words of assurance. Do not fear, be at peace, be strong and courageous. He recognizes how severe his distress and the impact this vision is having on him. Well, it works. Daniel is strengthened and he is ready to hear. And so the angel lifts the bark off the spiritual realm again to let us know about why he has come and what he's about to do next in the fighting against the prince of Persia and the arrival of the prince of Greece. One of the great contrasts in this verse is how the kingdoms of Persia and Greece were certainly more powerful than Israel at this time. And yet, who had the more powerful spiritual being representing them? The little, seemingly powerless in the eyes of man one. Brothers and sisters, never forget that earthly realities do not necessarily reflect heavenly realities. God's might is so often found in places and among people that we would consider powerless. He has and he continues to use the weak to shame the strong. And then the angel prepares us for what is about to come next. Let's read from verse 21. But I will tell you what is inscribed in the book of truth. There is none who contends by my side against these except Michael, your prince. And as for me, in the first year of Darius, the Mede, I stood up to confirm and strengthen him. The book of truth. We don't see this phrase anywhere else in Scripture, but from the context, it seems pretty clear that he's referring to the events of history that God has written. The events that he's about to spend all of chapter 11 telling Daniel about. And he begins by introducing his defense of Michael and giving us a timestamp of when he did that. And so now, the scene is set. This God, the one whose messengers are of such dazzling beauty and and, and of color and brightness and radiance and righteousness. This God whose visions and interactions with people have left them overwhelmed, speechless, strengthless, breathless. 
This God whose domain extends even to worlds unknown, worlds unseen and untouched by human hands. This God who is not a servant of time, but is the master of it. He is the author of the book of truth. And in that book is written every moment, in every place, in every atom for all time. In a moment, I'll invite Robin up again to read to us most of chapter 11. And even though I won't be walking us through every verse in the second half, it's good for us to hear the word of God read in the public gathering of the church. Sure, you're you're probably not going to uh, return to this chapter over and over in your personal devotional time for spiritual comfort, but I would love for us to listen to it and to perhaps get a sense of why this might have been of great comfort to Daniel and the Israelites who first heard it and why it can still be of comfort to us. Because all Scripture, after all, is God-breathed. As you listen, let me encourage you to try and picture this story happening in real life. Kids, you might want to try and you know, listen to this and, and maybe even act it out later with different roles. I got dibs on King of the North, whatever it is. And so as the vision did in chapter 8, this, uh, this next section concerns the kingdoms of Persia and Greece, even though Persia's role is one verse long. The rest is all about Greece and a few of its kings. You see, these things, they really did happen in history. But remember that while it is history for us, we read it as, as something that's happened for the original hearers. It was something that was about to happen. Not about to, but will happen in the future. Thank you, Robin. Reading from Daniel chapter 11, uh, verse 2 through to 35, on page 436. And now I will show you the truth. Behold, three more kings shall arise in Persia, and a fourth shall be far richer than all of them. And when he has become strong through his riches, he shall stir up all against the kingdom of Greece. Then a mighty king shall arise who shall rule with great dominion and do as he wills. And as soon as he has arisen, his kingdom shall be broken and divided toward the four winds of heaven, but not to his posterity, nor according to the authority with which he ruled, for his kingdom shall be plucked up and go to others besides these. Then the king of the south shall be strong, but one of his princes shall be stronger than he and shall rule, and his authority shall be a great authority. After some years they shall make an alliance, and the daughter of the king of the south shall come to the king of the north to make an agreement. But she, no, she shall not retain the strength of her arm, and he and his arm shall not endure. But she shall be given up, and her attendants, he who fathered her, and he who supported her in those times. And from a branch of her roots, one shall arise in his place. He shall come against the army and enter the fortress of the king of the north, and he shall deal with them and shall prevail. He shall also carry off to Egypt their gods with their metal images and their precious vessels of silver and gold. And for some years he shall refrain from attacking the king of the north. Then the latter shall come into the realm of the king of the south, but shall return to his own land. His sons shall wage war and assemble a multitude of great forces, which shall keep coming and overflow and pass through, and again shall carry the war as far as his fortress." 
Then the king of the south, moved with rage, shall come out and fight against the king of the north. And he shall raise a great multitude, but it shall be given into his hand. And when the multitude is taken away, his heart shall be exalted, and he shall cast down tens of thousands, but he shall not prevail. For the king of the north shall again raise a multitude greater than the first. And after some years, he shall come on with a great army and abundant supplies. In those times, many shall rise against the king of the south, and the violent among your own people shall lift themselves up in order to fulfill the vision, but they shall fail. Then the king of the north shall come and throw up siege works and take a well-fortified city, and the forces of the south shall not stand, or even his best troops, for there shall be no strength to stand. But he who comes against him shall do as he wills, and none shall stand before him. And he shall stand in the glorious land with destruction in his hand. He shall set his face to come with the strength of his whole kingdom, and he shall bring terms of an agreement and perform them. He shall give him the daughter of women to destroy the kingdom, but it shall not stand or be to his advantage. Afterward, he shall turn his face to the coastlands and shall capture many of them, but a commander shall put an end to his insolence. Indeed, he shall turn his insolence back upon him. Then he shall turn his face back toward the fortress of his own land, but he shall stumble and fall and shall not be found." Then shall arise in his place one who shall send an exactor of tribute for the glory of the kingdom. For within a few days he shall be broken, neither in anger nor in battle. In his place shall arise a contemptible person to whom royal majesty has not been given. He shall come in without warning and obtain the kingdom by flatteries. Armies shall be utterly swept away before him and broken, even the prince of the covenant." And from the time that an alliance is made with him, he shall act deceitfully, and he shall become strong with a small people. Without warning, he shall come into the richest parts of the province, and he shall do what neither his fathers nor his father's fathers have done, scattering among them plunder, spoil, and goods. He shall devise plans against strongholds, but only for a time. And he shall stir up his power and his heart against the king of the south with a great army. And the king of the south shall wage war with an exceedingly great and mighty army, but he shall not stand, for plots shall be devised against him. Even those who eat his food shall break him. His army shall be swept away, and many shall fall down slain. And as for the two kings, their hearts shall be bent on doing evil. They shall speak lies at the same table, but to no avail, for the end is yet to be at the appointed time. And he shall return to his land with great wealth, but his heart shall be set against the holy covenant. And he shall work his will and return to his own land. At the time appointed, he shall return and come into the south, but it shall not be this time as it was before. For ships of Kittim shall come against him, and he shall be afraid and withdraw, and shall turn back and be enraged and take action against the holy covenant. He shall turn back and pay attention to those who forsake the holy covenant. Forces from him shall appear and profane the temple and fortress and shall take away the regular burnt offering and they shall set up the abomination that makes desolate. He shall seduce with flattery those who violate the covenant, but the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. And the wise among the people shall make many understand, though for some days they shall stumble by sword and flame, by captivity and plunder." When they stumble, they shall receive a little help, and many shall join themselves to them with flattery. And some of the wise shall stumble, so that they may be refined, purified, and made white, until the time of the end, for it still awaits the appointed time.
Thank you, Robin. So let me ask you, are you the kind of storyteller that goes into every single detail, even if it's not important to the story? Or are you the kind that just wants to tell the most important bits? Anyone? Think about it. I could tell you what my wife and I are, but I won't. Perhaps you're a bit of both. Perhaps you kind of think, oh no, I love this little bit, this little detail. This is just, even though it's not really important to the, to the main plot, I just want to include that. Well, Daniel in this vision is a little bit of both. At some points, he goes into great detail, and other times, he, he just skips over whole time periods. That's what the beginning of this chapter uh, is like, of this vision. Uh, the vision begins with a word about Persia and three of its three kings, and then the fourth, who is most likely referring to Xerxes. Xerxes invaded Greece, but he was beaten at the Battle of Salamis in 480 BC. But Persia still remained the dominant power, the dominant empire for another 150 years or so, with kings that obviously just weren't worth mentioning in this vision. Literally between verses 2 and 3 is something like a century and a half. In verse 3, the narrative shifts to talking about Alexander the Great without giving us much of a heads up. Now, kids, let me ask you, and for the, especially for those who can read, uh, why do you think they called him Alexandra the Great? This verse gives us a little bit of a hint. Anyone? Yeah? Adults, why do you think he was called Alexander the Great? Yeah, his rule. The breadth of it, the... Uh, the, the, not only that, but also the speed of it. He was such a great conqueror that he uh, was able to take over the Persian Empire in an incredible under 10 years. And so we have seen that already in the book of Daniel in, in chapters 7 and 8. But also, as we've seen, his reign would not last and the kingdom of Greece would be divided into four other kingdoms, the four winds of heaven. That's what verse 4 is describing. His kingdom is broken and divided toward those four winds, and the rule will just not be the same. And so from here, right through to verse 35, the angel's vision to Daniel basically gives us a recounting of some of the history of these four kingdoms with a particular focus on the north and the south kingdoms. So as you can see from the map, it would be divided into several uh, into four kingdoms and the north and south would be the Seleucid and the Ptolemaic kingdoms. Uh, They were named after their first kings. And so the kings of these kingdoms would feature in this chapter along with Antiochus IV, whom we met before, also known as Antiochus Epiphanes. And by and large, the details that are given in chapter 11 are accurate according to the historical uh, truth. Can you imagine being an Israelite who lived at this time, uh, in the time of these kingdoms, in the time of Alexander the Great and these these, uh, kingdoms that came after him, and opening up a scroll of Daniel to read that this, and to see that this is unfolding in real time before your very eyes. 
I mean, where this vision ends, which we'll see next week, would have still been an encouragement to the Israelites who lived in the time before any of this actually happened. But for those for whom it happened in the moment and for those who came after, there would have been great comfort drawn from this vision. Now, it needs to be said, other prophecies in Scripture, they usually do not contain this level of detail, which is why some critical scholars have taken that to mean that this book was written after all of these events actually happened, and then the author just pretended to be a character named Daniel who lived in the King Nebuchadnezzar's court centuries before. Now, I gave some of my reasons for uh, earlier on in the series why I think that's not correct and why I think that could actually do some serious damage to our faith. I'm happy to talk about that more if you're interested. Some of that will become clearer next week. But for now, let me draw out three observations from these verses in chapter 11 that we have just read that I hope encourage you to build your hope on certainty. Firstly, as the earlier chapters in Daniel have already made plain, human power is no match for God's. Human power is no match for God's. You know, even when it looks impressive and when it looks, and they themselves, the, the, the people, the kings, think that they have great power. <clears throat> verses, <clears throat> verses 3, 5, 11, and 16, just to name a few examples from the chapter, show us how these kings, they had great dominion and they did whatever they wanted. This is a description of a great kingdom. The language even repeats descriptions from earlier on in the book of Daniel, like we've seen in chapters 7 and 8. These kingdoms and these kings, they have, they have real earthly greatness and they know it. But did you notice in the chapter, as, the narr- as Robin read through, that it never lasts? Never The balance of power is constantly shifting between north and south, south and north, depending on who's got the greater army or the greatest strategy. There's always an uprising. There's always another battle. There's always another man hungering for greatness, biding his time, waiting for the right moment to strike. That is a pattern that has not stopped. The ancient Greek tale of Damocles and the sword captures this well. I don't know if you are familiar with it. <clears throat> this is a, a picture of it. And Brayden paid me out because he said, you can't even see the sword. But if you look closely, you'll see it. As the story goes, a man in the court of King Dionysius named Damocles talked to the king about how great the life of a king must be. You know, he's more powerful than anyone else. He can do whatever he wants. And so the king offers to trade places with Damocles for one day, which he quickly and eagerly accepts. But the king arranges for a sword to be hung and suspended over the throne by a single horsehair, symbolizing the constant threat that a king is, uh, ex- experiences by those who want to take his position. Damocles quickly realizes that being the king is not all that it's cracked up to be after all. And he willingly trades back. So it is with all human power. It is never absolute. You will always have to watch your back. It never lasts forever. 
Which brings us to the second observation from this chapter, that God alone is sovereign. God alone has absolute power and absolute authority. He does not have to fear Damocles' sword. As we've noted along the way in this book, the visions and the narrative are filled with the so-called divine passives. That is, descriptions of events that don't tell us who is behind them, but that they are simply done. This is right throughout chapter 11. To give you just a couple of examples, verse 4, his kingdom shall be plucked up and go to others besides these. Verse 11, it shall be given into his hand. You see, not only is it the taking away of the kingdom, but also in the giving it that God is sovereign. Verse 20, he shall be broken. And verse 27, the end is yet to be at the time appointed. Verse 27 reminds us that it's not just in the events themselves, but even when they happen, that it is according to God's sovereign will. Who stands behind all of these events? Who stands behind all of the happenings of the ins and the outs and the ebb and flow of history? It is the great king, the king of kings. And brothers and sisters, it is from this that we can draw our comfort Our certain hope is based on a certain God who is the certain author of all history. Perhaps the story of your life isn't the one that you would have written. But when you put your trust in the one who has written it, then no earthly power or force can take your certain hope away from you. The absolute author has absolute authority. It is only when we decide that we want to go to war with him that our kingdoms crumble. Might that be why you are distressed about how things have gone in your life? And why you are concerned about where it will go? Could it be that you have gladly surrendered to God in the broad sense, the outcome of your life, but there are still some details that you don't want to let go of? And brothers and sisters, if you're the type that isn't worried or who's less worried about these things, how might you encourage and walk alongside your brothers and sisters who do with the word of truth, with the certainty of God's sovereignty. And that brings us to our final observation about this chapter, which is that God alone is sovereign even over the details. He is sovereign even over the details. As I mentioned before, this is perhaps the most detailed prophecy about the future in the whole Bible. Yet even it lacks the kind of detail that God could have provided if he wanted to. He could have given us a minute-by-minute, blow-by-blow account of things that happened. Jesus tells us in Matthew 10 that not a single sparrow falls to the ground without our Heavenly Father's hand behind it. That not a single strand of your hair goes unnoticed by Him. And so if that is the case... 
Why would you hold on to hopes that you think you can control? Why would you not surrender every detail of your life to the one who loves you so much that he sent his only son to save you, to welcome you into his family, to call you one greatly loved? Brothers and sisters, the absolute author, the one who has written the story from beginning to end, the one in whose presence we can only stand because of his love and his grace, he holds your future too, in all of its details. Find comfort, find assurance, and find endurance in Him. And it is in response to Jesus that we can hear His exhortation and instruction, which He goes on to say in Matthew 10. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. Will you entrust your life, your future, and all of its details into the hands of of your Father who is in heaven. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it is just so natural for us to be concerned about things that have not yet happened. And yet, Father, it so easily moves from thinking about that to worrying about that to not trusting you with that. So, Father, as we saw in your encouragement to Daniel and to his people, how their future, their days to come were already written in your book of truth. God, may we see that our days also have been written. And that in that, we may have a certain hope in the fact that when we place our trust in you, we know what comes when this mortal life ends. May we draw our comfort and assurance from these truths. In Jesus' name, amen.